everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode is supported by Muckoff and we've got a lovely discount code coming right up. Muckoff have recently made a big step in their mission to improve their environmental impact by launching Punk Powder, their first ever plastic-free bike cleaner. Punk Powder enables them to reduce packaging by 92% compared to regular cleaner and it means we aren't unnecessarily shipping water around the planet. Punk powder sachets are compostable and printed with vegetable-based inks. They come in a cardboard sleeve which folds into a handy funnel to pour the contents of the sachet into your aluminium bottle for life. Add a litre of warm water, give it a quick shake and you're ready to go. The cleaner is readily biodegradable and made from plant-based ingredients. I've tried it and it's super easy to mix, ready to go in seconds and it works just as well as the already awesome Muckoff Nanotech bike cleaner. I managed to clean some pretty stubborn sheep poo off my bike with ease and it left it looking great. If you want to try Punk Powder or get your hands on any of the rest of the Muckoff product range, then as a downtime listener, you can get 20% off during the month of September using the code DOWNTIME20 at the checkout over on muck-off.com. That's downtime, all uppercase, followed by the number 20 over on muckoff.com. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to help support the show, you can get your hands on our range of merch over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. It's super top quality, it's organic, it's made in a factory using renewable energy and it's delivered with no single-use plastics. Head there now and check out what we've got. All the proceeds help support and improve the show. Please make sure you're following the podcast on whatever platform you listen. There's probably going to be a button there that says follow or subscribe, so hit that now. It's free and it means you're going to get every episode as soon as it's available. If you can't find the button, then you can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop where there's links to all the major platforms there to help you. Also, please give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook where I'm at Downtime Podcast. It's the best place to keep up to date and it's always lovely to hear from you there. This episode is also supported by Santa Cruz and today I'm joined by Kieran McKinnon, who is a research and development specialist who spends his days trying to make their bikes ride the way they want them to. We start off finding out about Kieran's race career and how he found his way to sweeping the floors at Santa Cruz. From there, hear how he's progressed his career to the role that he has today. We chat about how they design and develop the kinematics for the bikes, how important the shock tune really is, and we get Kieran's thoughts on bike setup. We also hear Kieran's view on some of the current trends like high pivot, pedal kickback and faster rebound speeds. This is a rare and fascinating insight into the mind of someone who has a huge input into how our bikes ride, and I really hope you enjoy it. All right, without further ado, here's Kieran McKinnon. Kieran McKinnon, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Things are great, man. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, stoked to be here. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. And obviously, um, you're at Santa Cruz Bikes. We're going to talk a lot about that. But before we do, let's get a bit of background on you and your life in kind of bikes in general. Just give us a quick start. How did mountain biking come into your life in the first place? Uh, mountain bike came about uh, about high school for me. So I was 17 years old. Um, I'd always been into, to racing in general, like kind of growing up, I wanted to be a professional race car driver, like most boys my age, probably, <laughs> but, um, kind of the reality set in of, uh, you know, pretty big dude. I'm six, three, 200 pounds now. So I didn't really fit in a race car too good. And then also my parents weren't particularly wealthy. So <laughs> kind of had to give that one up, give yeah. up on that one pretty early on. Um, Kind of messed around with different forms of racing, kind of did a radio control racing for a bit and just kind of anything to really feed that, uh, the racing aspect. And then, uh, yeah, 
17 years old. Uh, my buddy got a mountain bike and it's like a big hit or something back then. And I was like, man, that thing is awesome. And, uh, I ended up actually getting a Santa Cruz bullet was my first, uh, real mountain bike, nice. uh, full suspension. And, uh, yeah, kind of went from there. We just immediately into the racing side of things. And, um, I think it was a matter of months between getting my first full suspension bike to the time that I entered my first down, my local downhill race. So, so it was always going to be downhill then. It wasn't, you didn't oh, yeah. have much of an interest in the uh, pedaling side of it. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> the, uh, the least amount of work I could do to get the thrill was kind of, kind of where is that? I really like the speed aspect and the, the risk and the danger and all the cool nice. stuff. How did you get on? Was there a natural talent there? Um, I wouldn't say that I'm really naturally talented at much, but I think, uh, I would say that I have the ability to kind of study what others are doing and kind of at least pay attention enough to like, see what I should be doing and then continually practice that. And eventually with enough practice, I can, uh, maybe get good enough kind of thing. So quite an analytical approach to very, very. And I think that might feed into to my job today yeah for sure so the the racing thing uh progressed pretty well right the the results started to come and you've had a fair amount of success over the years yeah uh early early on it was kind of um pretty surprising actually i'd say um i started i did my first mountain bike race locally in 2009 um it was a pretty cool little series it's a central coast cyclocross they call it so it's like a cyclocross based series but they would do a super d uh series and uh so for me that was kind of like a perfect entry point because the tracks are pretty tame and you kind of push your limits without too much danger on them and um so i did that in 2009 was my first time and um kind of caught the racing bug for it and then uh started i think my first my first season doing the nationals was uh not even it was like a partial national uh series was 2010 and uh basically just did did all the like the races that i had to do to make the uh, national championship race which is in sol vista and uh <laughs> that was kind of eye-opening to me because I really didn't have much experience and honestly didn't really have uh, any business riding that track, to be honest. There's like big old jumps on it and stuff. And uh, um, I got broke off pretty good in practice there. But um, yeah, and then kind of healed. And 2011, I actually just like by the skin of my teeth made uh, the world championship team. Mm hmm. So, uh, that was in, uh, I think I was like seventh pick or something, right? So like literally like the last kid to get picked for the world's team. And, uh, that was at Champery, Switzerland, which is like, I don't know, pretty, it was like, of course it was raining too, but, um, <laughs> yeah, super steep, super muddy, just like totally like kid from Santa Cruz didn't know what the hell he was doing out there. Um, but like giving it my best shot, you know, and, um, yeah, I think honestly for all the all the juniors at that race, that was kind of an eye opener. Um, I was like one of two kids that didn't uh, injure themselves before the finals on the team. Wow. So like the whole team was like 
basically broke off. Um, <laughs> it was pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. So you've had a kind of a, a mixed career of some downhill world cups some world champs, a lot of, um, like the pro GRT series, I think you've won in yeah. the U S yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say through most of my racing, I focused on the national series. Yeah. So I would do, um, basically a full U S pro GRT, uh, series and then kind of throw in some world cups, maybe like between two races and maybe a half a season of world cup in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, um, lots of Mount St. Anne was kind of like the, the popular one to go to for us guys. And so I've done Mount St. Anne quite a few times. And then, um, I've always kind of had a thing for Fort William. Like, I don't know if it's, <laughs> big big tall guy track or what it is but um man i just love that upper section of four wheel it's like super fun just going as fast as you can down it it's like not not overly technical it's um, pretty pretty gnarly at speed though that section eh? oh yeah but i love it man it's like that's <laughs> like that's why i got into mountain bike racing dude just like hitting hitting shit as fast and hard as you could <laughs> that's it's definitely my jam yeah so having suspension that works is uh something that's pretty important to you then i guess yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, I really like that track. And uh, I've done like European World Cups as well. Um, the uh, the Half Yell World Championships was pretty memorable. Um, that was a really cool place to visit. Um, but yeah, That's just funny. kind of kind of a little bit of everything. Um, but yeah, I think most of my most of my success uh, internationally was Mount Saint Anne and the Fort William. Yeah. And what, um, what kind of level of support did you have throughout that? Did you, did you get to the point where you would consider yourself a professional racer kind of thing or? Um, yeah. So probably not a lot of people know this, but kind of throughout my entire racing, um, career, I guess, uh, I was working basically full time at Santa Cruz mm-hmm. and I'd actually use my, my PTO hours to go and race. So, um, just like being there, um, kind of in front of people, um, kind of, I think helped, helped quite a bit in terms of their support of me. Mm-hmm. And I would say I was actually supported really well. Um, especially, um, towards the end when I was a little bit more successful and kind of had that momentum going. Nice. And so alongside all the racing, when you got going with it, were you still studying? Like what, what were you looking at from a, like the academic side of things or the work side of things, I guess. So basically I went all the way through high school and, uh, basically I was given a, an opportunity actually in high school, I started working at Santa Cruz part-time. Uh-huh. So, uh, Joe Graney, um, the now CEO of Santa Cruz was, a uh, the engineering director at the time. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of a funny, funny thing that came about really. Like my dad, my dad owns a, a landscaping company here in Santa Cruz and just by chance I ended up doing Joe's landscaping. Nice. And, uh, my dad was like, yeah, like my kid likes bikes. And Joe's like, yeah, great. We could have, we could use some kid to like sweep up the shop, you know, a couple of days a week. So that's kind of how it started. And, um, yeah, eventually kind of as I was moving through high school and, eventually graduated, um, Joe offered me a full-time position, um, out of high school. And I didn't really know what 
I wanted to do for like long-term profession, but I knew at the time I really loved mountain biking and like, why wouldn't I take the opportunity to work full-time for a brand that I thought was really cool. So, um, yeah. So instead of pursuing college education, I just kind of went for the, the work thing and followed, followed what I wanted to do. And I always figured that if I burnt out on it or if I had an idea of what I wanted to do for schooling, I would, you know, come back to it. But yeah, kind of just taking it year by year, I guess. Nice. How uh, long have you been there now? Uh, geez, it's probably been, let's see, it was 20, 2009, I want to say I started. Okay. So yeah, it's been over 10 years now. Yeah. Amazing. So what, what has been your career path within Santa Cruz? Like you say, you started off kind of sweeping the warehouse, but what, what have you done on your way through to where you are now? Yeah. I honestly, I think one of the things that was really pretty beneficial was like, yes, I was sweeping the floor, but I was doing it, uh, in the engineering department. Right. Yeah. So I had direct communication with um, all of the creative people in the uh, business. So, um, yeah, I think it was really um, beneficial just to have the people um, put in place to kind of grow my career, see what I was doing and realize, oh, he's not just like some, some hack, you know. Um, so, yeah, I uh, started basically doing sweeping up, cleaning the engineering shop, um, moved into a test lab role. So basically we have these, uh, we have strength and stiffness testing that we do, um, even since the beginning in-house, uh, in Santa Cruz. Um, and then, so I did the test lab technician, which is like stiffness, but also destructive tests. Mm -hmm. Um, and then from there, uh, I moved into the marketing department for a little bit. So I built photo bikes, um, just like shipments to athletes, um, basically any sort of uh, mechanical need that the marketing department had for me. I was in charge of building up for them. Um, and then uh, kind of as we grew as a company, there's more opportunity for me to kind of find my niche. and. Uh, so after the the marketing role, I kind of found myself in a spot where I could be like a, a product technician, essentially. So I would work for the senior product manager and handle all of like the prototype R&D builds uh, for like the ride testing side of things nice. and uh, or like the real world testing rather than Tesla. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where I've been for probably the longest time, um, at the brand was the product technician and, um, yeah. And then more, more recently that kind of shifted into a, uh, like a product development role or, uh, now I work with the product managers and engineers to develop the ride quality of the bikes, which is, mm -hmm. um, really fascinating to me. Yeah. So you're you're kind of responsible for the overall feel of the bike. Is that a fair summary? So how the combination of sort of kinematics and geometry stack up to, to make a bike ride. Is that what you're doing? Um, I would say that it's my job to 
facilitate what the vision is in terms of that. Like I have okay. a lot of feedback when it comes to um, helping, I guess, like steer the feel of the bike. But at the end of the day, my job is to make the product manager happy. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of like back and forth, like we bounce ideas off each other, but, um, it's not like necessarily my, my call, you know, it's not like I'm running the show, you know, I'm just trying to, uh-huh. to help facilitate what we want from the bike. But you're a big part of that upfront decision making process as to what you as a company feel a certain platform should be like, is that? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say that there's a, you definitely want the bike to perform for its intended use case the best it can. Right. So you don't want to make a, a blur if you're like a V10 or whatever. Right. Um, but, um, yeah. So my job is to kind of follow the product from the very beginning, um, mule stages throughout frame kinematic geometry development and then um kind of all the way till final production shock tunes so yeah i definitely have the unique ability to kind of like help shape this product all the way to the end which is pretty cool yeah that's really cool what what kind of input comes into the front end of that process then because obviously you've got a long period from when you guys start talking about a platform update or a new a brand new platform to when it hits the market what what yeah what voices are shaping the start of that to decide what's the platform need to be and what do we want to achieve with it does that make sense yeah i think the platforms are pretty well defined i think for for us it's like um just improvements, right? Like what did, what did the previous version do uh, that was less than desirable and how can we get that bike to um, really meet our standards in terms of ride quality? And um, a lot of that I think is like, we've always been pretty good. I think with uh, frame stiffness, like I think that like our carbon technology and engineering behind the stiffness side of things has always been really good. Um, at least my favorite part, I think, of our bikes has been the stiffness over the years. But um, yeah, so I think more more recently, it's like uh, suspension kinematics has been a really uh, hot topic for us, and just trying to to chip away and get the bikes to to ride as they should. I think down the trail, um, having the right sensitivity and support, and um, yeah, I think that's. I mean, in terms of my involvement, the suspension side of things has been the, definitely the biggest part. Yeah. And is that feedback on areas that could be improved coming from customers? Is it coming from journalists? Is it coming from athletes? Is it coming from staff internally? Um, I would say it's, it's a little bit of all of that, to be honest. I think some people are obviously more sensitive than others. And uh, part of my job is trying to... Um, create relationships with those people that have uh, that like solid predictable feedback. Um, And um, it's not just, not just like pro level riders or whatever. It's like, I'm looking for people all along the spectrum from like relatively novice riders that are in touch with how the bike feels all the way up to that professional level, just to get like 
more of a broad scope of uh, what we're shooting for. And, you know, it would, I think it would be a bit silly just to make something, you know, for, you know, Greg Menard to ride and everyone else hates it. Right. Um, and I think kind of the goal behind it is like, yes, we want something that Greg Menard is going to, you know, be able to ride faster, whoever, you know, a top level rider, but also allow the adjustability, um, in the ease of tuning to the kinematics to allow a rider of any speed to be happy with it. Um, and just kind of trying to find that sweet spot. Yeah. When you say that sort of the tunability side, are we talking about adjustments on the fork and shock or are you thinking about things beyond that with like, you know, geometry adjustments or kind of progression tweaks and things like that or different linkages? Um, I think from like the kinematic side, I think if you, I do strongly feel that the better your, your linkage and kinematic is, the easier it is to accommodate more people. Okay. Um, one thing that I think can dictate whether like a pro level guy is going to love it or a more novice person is going to love it comes down to the, the shock setup. Right. And, um, I think if you don't do a good job with the linkage, you're going to, for like a pro level guy, he's going to want a little bit stiffer, but then he's going to have to sacrifice, you know, sensitivity, for example, or, uh, compliance over stuff, uh, traction, um, to get that. And, uh, I think really the, the focus is try to try to accommodate every rider in that sense. Um, but also giving, giving people, uh, intuitive adjustments that can kind of like tailor the feel of the bike a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, the high and low bottom bracket chip that we have. And then, uh, yeah, I think just trying to, trying to, uh, allow the end user to set the bike up, uh, to meet their riding style essentially, or if they want to try like, Oh, what is, what is a higher bottom bracket feel like? Or what is a steeper head to feel like? Um, they have the ability to to pretty easily change that and just experiment and see what they like as a rider. Yeah, for sure. And you guys have been using VPP now across the vast majority of platforms for about 20 years, I think. I mean, is it, do you feel like it's helped having a consistent platform for so long or are there some downsides and constraints that that also kind of puts on you with, with tuning the, the kinematic and the way the bike feels? Um, I think it's good. Uh, we have a lot of experience playing with the parameters of VPP. Um, I think VPP in general is, I believe to be one of the more, uh, challenging linkages to manipulate, to get the exact feeling that you want out of it. Um, there's definitely easier designs out there to, to play around with, to get, you know, your desired feel, your desired kinematic. Um, but I do think our experience, um, playing with those parameters with VPP has definitely helped compared to like a newer company trying to jump on to VPP. I think we definitely have a little bit of a experience advantage there. Um, so that helps. Um, yeah. Um, Okay. So when you're developing a, a kinematic for a bike, what are the 
key variables that you're kind of looking to optimize and why? And then are there other variables that you're more willing to take a hit on? Because I mean, this is engineering and generally you can't have everything you want, right? It's always a balance of trade-offs. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely always a balance. It's easy to you know have a laundry list of things that you want the bike to have, but the reality is um, it's basically impossible to have every single thing you want. Uh, so I think one thing that um, is important to us, which has kind of been seen with the shift to like the lower link driven shocks, um, has been getting like a good a good leverage curve, which to us means a pretty, pretty damn straight leverage curve, okay. uh, rather than, uh, I don't know, I guess some of the upper link driven VPP bikes, uh, I think that was something that we saw improve, like potential improvement in, um, just to get the bike to feel more, uh, predictable and, uh, just like a better, more supportive ride quality. Uh-huh. Um, so leverage is big for us. Um, more more recently we've been pretty pretty focused on anti-squat um anti-squat is like pretty i would say kind of at the top of my personal list of things okay. um can you just exp- explain anti-squat for people that might not understand that yeah so anti-squat is essentially chain influence resisting movement of the suspension so when you push on the pedal your chain is essentially depending on how much anti-squat you have resisting your suspension movement. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a lot of anti-squat, you tend to have a lot of pedal kickback as well. So as your suspension is moving, uh, that's actually walking your cranks backwards, depending on the, the speed of the hip essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, having your body weight on the pedals is essentially restricting your suspension movement. So something kind of on the top of my list has been trying to find that that sweet spot where your suspension can be as active as it can be, uh, descending, but also getting good grip climbing. And I think a common, in my opinion, a, a common misinterpretation of high anti-squat is like, if you have a lot of anti-squat, your bike's going to pedal amazingly. Well, I don't necessarily believe that i think ha- sometimes having lower anti-squat means that you actually get more traction uh while climbing and um having too much anti-squat yeah the bike feels like it's efficient because it's not moving uh but like also whenever you put the pressure on the pedal to get the bike to move forward a certain amount of that energy is going into resisting your body weight influence on the suspension okay. so it's kind of an inefficiency there. So I think at least in my world, it's like, how can we facilitate lower anti-squat with uh, our leverage curves? How can we get the support that we want uh, from our leverage rather than relying on the chain influence on the suspension to, yeah. uh, you know, resist the bobbing that naturally comes from a, like a high leverage uh, design, for example. Uh-huh. Interesting stuff. So is that, are those the kind of two key variables that you're looking to work on mainly leverage curve and anti-squat? Uh, those are the two at the top of my list. There's a laundry list of stuff that, Mm -hmm. uh, is worth paying attention to as well. Um, 
But in my mind, those are the two main things that helps a bike uh, ride well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there anything really low down on that list that maybe other people sort of fuss about a bit, but you you feel kind of less worried about? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that anything is really not worth worrying about. Um, I think there's, it's just a matter of what are the things that you're prioritizing and what are the things you're willing to maybe compromise on to get there? Like, I don't, I don't think that, I mean, maybe we'll get to a place as an industry where the perfect kinematic is achievable, but I think at this point, there's always, there's always going to be a small drawback. Um, to really any to any suspension design that I've seen, at least there's always a, a trade off somewhere. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. There's things like I think honestly a big a big uh, point of debate is like anti rise, for example. Mm-hmm. So like anti rise is like how much the bike squats under braking, right? So like in theory, if you pull the brakes on a high anti I guess I was, was I saying anti-squat or anti-rise? Anti-rise, yeah. Yeah, okay, so anti-rise. Um, as you pull the brakes on a high anti-rise bike, uh, the bike is naturally going to squat, which is nice for um, like maintaining a good geometry under braking. Like you don't want your, your bike to necessarily pitch forward. Like you want mm-hmm. your bike to have a little bit of uh, geometry stability there, um, but also that if you have too much of it allows your or it makes your suspension pack up and it doesn't give you as good a grip. And I think that's, I think that's kind of a, the reason why it might be debated is because I think it kind of depends on your riding style. Okay. Like I think your ability to um, distribute rider weight within the bike definitely dictates how much anti-rise you want from a bike Uh Um, and how much, um, how much like, uh, geometry instability, let's say, like how much like pitching forward a rider can um, kind of deal with for the uh, the trade-off of having a more sensitive suspension. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think with, you know, modern bikes with longer geometry, longer cockpits, I guess inherently more stable, anti-rise is maybe slightly less of a, a need. Do you think that the inherent stability and the length of the frame helps? So I think as bikes get longer, you have less of an ability to, to dictate your, uh, your weight bias in the frame, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like if you think about a long reach, it's like, can't really get super far back. You're kind of like, uh, in this like locked out I kind of at the, I mean, maybe this isn't like an extreme example, but you're kind of at the end of your reach essentially, right? You're like spread out over this big old bike and there's like not a chance in hell you're going to be able to overcome a bike with super low anti-rise, right? You're just going to be like all over the front wheel and the fork under braking, right? So uh-huh. I don't know. I almost I would almost but, think that uh, with bigger bikes, that becomes more important because the rider okay. has less of an ability to distribute their body weight to dictate that that weight but I, balance. But I guess you got to move your body weight further for it to have a significant impact because everything's so spread out is that fair 
Say that again. Well, with a Sorry. longer <laughs> wheelbase bike, the if you let's say you move two centimeters forward on a short bike, that's quite yeah. a substantial amount. If you move two centimeters forward on a long bike, it's less significant in the overall wheelbase of the bike. So the yeah. impact of a bike rising as you brake it might be less significant on a longer frame i guess is where my brain was going with that yeah i guess the way that i'm thinking about it is like if you're on a bike with long reach uh to be centered in the bike you're more effectively stretched out to get to your handlebars and yeah. your controls right so your ability to move rearward on the bike is even less than if you're on a bike that was smaller in reach right like yeah. in terms of getting over the rear axle to help with a uh, weight distribution on the bike, you're kind yeah, of so more, more limited, I would say. So it's, yeah, it's about being able to move to compensate for the, the, uh, inertia pushing you forward rather than it is about the sort of sensitivity of how much you move. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would okay. say that's accurate. Yeah, um, interesting. Okay. So uh, and I guess at the start of all of this, you're doing all this work, on a computer screen right it's all software based and you're looking at changing geometry and moving pivot points and changing link lengths and things like that and looking at what that does to all these various graphs is that is that how you're starting off with it i actually do a pretty limited amount of that sort of work um okay like i have i have a linkage on my computer and i you know when we're thinking about linkage work i'm kind of like roughly moving points around and trying to to learn trends of what affects what and how that can potentially uh lead us to something that we're after but when it comes down to like the the specifics of it i'm very much relying on the the design engineer to um work with the parameters that we have and some of the design constraints to to get what we're after Mm -hmm. so i think on my side it's more like uh, what are the kinematics that we're after? Like in okay. a in a perfect world, what do I want for a kinematic, or what uh-huh. what do I think we would want for a kinematic uh, for the style of bike? And then, um, so I come to the table with like my laundry list of unrealistic expectations, <laughs> and then uh, then the engineer is usually like, "No, nah, like we can do this or this," and um, we usually come to like a more realistic. Um, agreement of how we're going to move forward the project got you okay and when you first ride uh like the first prototype of of an of a new design do you generally know what to expect or are you often surprised by like how well do the the graphs and the kinematic that you've seen and and been able to achieve in the design translate to when you actually get to go and ride this thing um I definitely have my expectations based on what I think I know. Um, but I think part of learning is, uh, kind of getting slapped in the face with what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, it's definitely like a learning process, right? Like I think, uh, what I try to do is I try to, uh, come to each experience with an open mind and, uh, try and really soak in what I'm feeling more than like, having an expectation of, oh, this is going to be the best bike we've ever done. And then it ends up falling short. Um, I'm more focused on trying to learn what those changes are doing to the bike and kind of having a path forward based on that. 
Yeah. And is that is that kind of ride testing purely based on feel or are there measurements and metrics that you're you're looking at while you're doing that work? We're pretty feel based, I would say. Um, we do a little bit of data work, um, but probably in the grand scheme of, scheme of things, it's pretty pretty minimal. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is, uh, yeah, like interpretation of how the bike feels on the trail, which I think in some ways is really good. Um, I think it it makes the learning process a little bit slower, but I think that when we do come up with uh, conclusions or what we think about kinematics at the time, it's, it's pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like, e- there's like quicker ways to get there via like data acquisition systems and stuff, I think. But, um, yeah, I think, I think we're doing pretty, pretty good for, for what we have in terms of, uh, really just focusing on the, the ride quality and, uh, just doing a ton of testing. Like we definitely, yeah. uh, focus a lot on, getting as much time on these meals as we can. And um, honestly, that's a big part of why I can have this job is like, there's always, there's always something to ride and something to learn and something to figure out, you know, and try and come to like a, an idea of what's, what's working and what's not with what we're playing with at the time. Yeah. How many iterations might you work through then from kind of first prototype to the point where you decide that you're happy to sign off the, the way a bike rides I'm guessing it varies from project to project but are we talking like two or three are we talking tens or um so i think kind of the cool thing that we have going for us is that we we have a like an r&d fabrication facility in okay. santa cruz at the factory so we have guys full-time welding up frames for us to try and uh CNC machinist to make all the links that we want. So, um, I think maybe in terms of like full bikes, we could go through maybe three or four sometimes full bikes in a project, Mm -hmm. depending on our, our schedule and how that allows, but, um, or how that allows. But, um, one thing that we do a lot of is machining new links to try on these mules. So yeah. maybe we only have, let's say there's two complete bikes, but we'll have like, you know, six different combinations or, uh, via the linkage. And, um, over time we've tried to, um, get a little bit more creative with our mules to, to make it so we don't have to weld a full new frame to get the change that we want. So like inter- interchangeable shock plates and, you know, a few different tricks to, to try and get the most out of one frame. Yeah. Clever stuff. And is it hard to get the bike to feel consistent across all of the different frame sizes? Cause it, you know, different, different size bikes are going to perform slightly differently based on kind of small geometry changes. Right. That That's honestly a really tough one. Okay. Um, as we've gotten bigger as a company, we've, we've learned to rely more on those smaller riders to give us, uh, input that is inherently very, very challenging. Right. Um, like myself, like I'm six, three, 210 pounds. Uh, our product manager is 
you know, 190 pounds, 180 pounds. So it's like, for us, it's like really hard to, um, experience what a smaller rider would experience. So yeah, yeah, over the years we've learned to, um, really rely on, uh, those smaller riders to try and give us the feedback that we want. And yeah, it's tough because we, it's not like, it's not like we're ever really going to know what that feels like through our eyes. So yeah, it's been, uh, it's been cool trying to, uh, work with the smaller riders to, to come to like an agreement of like the, the, uh, the feel that we're after, right? Like trying to include more and, uh, really get on the same page with, um, people that are going to help us, um, with the smaller sizes. Yeah. Cool. One of the key things that makes any bike perform is the shock, which you guys kind of don't own, I guess, but you have some, some, some significant input into specifying how do you work with brands like fox and rock shocks here um it's been really cool working with those guys um fox is basically right up the road in scotts valley so um we have a pretty natural relationship with those guys and usually i can just drive up drive up and get kind of whatever shock teams i need at the time uh which has been great and i do have a lot of personal friends that work there so um and as well as at rock shocks, it's like we have just throughout the years of tuning shocks and, um, working pretty closely on the, the custom shock tunes. We've, we've developed pretty good relationships there as well. So, um, yeah, I would say, um, and like as, as I've been able to do more of the, the shock tuning side of things, um, you know, I have time in my schedule to go up and visit, uh, those guys at rock shocks and really develop help develop those shock tunes for our bikes that uh that hopefully work really well yeah and there's a big debate always it seems to still be ongoing air versus coil what are your thoughts on that and how do you decide what to specify on a bike so i think you you guys have coil and air within the range mm-hmm yeah, we try and make it an option as much as possible, I would say. Um, depending on the bike, sometimes there's design constraints that don't allow the packaging of a coil shock, let's say. Um, but I think, yeah, for the most part, um, more of like the gravity-oriented bikes, uh, we try to have as much coil availability as possible for those. Um, obviously, it comes at a slight expense of... Uh, weight mm-hmm. but um and also i don't know i think the air shocks uh just the ability of how they they can just kind of be tuned to almost fit any occasion you know uh with coil shocks it's like you have to buy different springs and kind of play around where i would say that the the air shock is easier for the maybe a little bit easier for the consumer to set up you don't have to have that initial investment and, buying different coils and playing around with that it's kind of like put put the right air in and kind of go um and then when you do need to play around with spring right it's kind of nice you can just plug the shock pump into it and kind of adjust it um i think some of the new air shocks though do a really good job of kind of mimicking that coil feel to them like there's been a lot of advancement recently in terms of 
having those air shocks feel like super sensitive and uh, supple and kind of feeling pretty, pretty dang similar, more similar than I think they ever have. So um, I think there's, there's always going to be people that are really into the, the coils though. There's, just, there's a certain feel about them that's in certain scenarios, it's pretty hard to match. So we always try and include as many coils into the spec as possible for those people. So nice. try and give the people what they want. Indeed. You talk about riders getting set up on their bikes and, um, I mean, that can make a huge difference to, to how the bike rides. So you can do your best to get everything exactly how you want it, but it relies on the customer, I guess, to some extent to get it set up to perform in that way for them. How do you go about trying to help the customers get to the setup that you'd like them to be running? So one of the parts of my job is doing the setup guides that go on the website. So for, for me, I always start with, you know, what after riding the bike for enough time and riding the shock tune that we're going to spec for enough time, uh, what do I like? Uh, kind of come up with like my ideal, uh, you know, clicker position, air pressure, spring rate, all of that. Uh, kind of like learning, learning how the, uh, air spring matches with your rebound damping, I think is really big. Mm-hmm. So like for, for all of the setup guides, like I'm after I've established my own preference in terms of setup and then also reference, uh, other riders of different weight brackets and their preferred setups. I'm, I'm like literally checking sag on all of the, uh, different, uh, weight brackets and then pushing on the bike and like feeling the rebound speed for like low and high speed circuits sometime on the, on the four way adjustable shocks and just kind of learning like, you know, how the rebound damping plays with the air spring because it's always, you always have to accommodate, like if you lower the air pressure, you have to lower the rebound damping and there's a certain uh, reaction speed there that you're shooting for that can be pretty, pretty subtle, I think. But um, yeah, basically just like pushing on enough bikes and getting that, that feel for like what, what we think that, that good speed is. And then uh, I think additionally, um, the compression side of things is a little bit more forgiving because, um, like as you lower your spring pressure, like if you're, let's say there's somebody that rides as aggressive as I do, who's five foot three, uh, or as aggressive as Minar, whoever, uh, as they're, they're not necessarily going to want from what I've seen, less compression damping. They're going to want less spring rate because they're lighter, but the impacts that the bike is going to see is actually pretty similar, uh, to, you know, a more aggressive, like a bigger rider. Um, from what I've seen, I wouldn't say that like a, a big rider necessarily wants a ton more compression damping. Um, but that the compression side of things has more to do with how aggressive the rider is. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's totally. like your, your air spring is tailored to the rider weight and then your rebound is to accommodate the spring rate. And then your compression is really, um, 
in my opinion, more of the the preference side of things, like how much you want your bike to, uh, you know, conform to bumps in the trail or be active versus having that support. And that's a, that comes down, I think, to rider aggression and expectations there. Do you think that applies to high speed and low speed compression circuits? If the, if you've got both options? Yeah, I think, I do think so for sure. There's a certain kind of with any shock that I've played with, at least there's a, there's a blending that needs to happen. It's not like, Oh, I want the bike to be rock solid when I pump into something, but also be super active. Uh, when I hit a curb, there's always like a certain, like, yes, there are the high speed definitely trends, uh, with these sorts of impacts. But if you have your low speed adjuster close, it's going to affect those impacts still, you know, it's like, I would say that they definitely trend in, in a similar way. Um, you don't really see too much like the adjusters on opposite ends of a spectrum and, you know, it's pretty, you're kind of tuning it to, uh, for each adjuster to play well with each other. And I think that goes into the, the overall support and sensitivity of the bike. Okay. That makes yeah, that sense. Makes, yeah, it totally does. What about riders that are just buying a frame rather than a complete bike? Cause they they can really make a difference to how that thing is going to feel, right? You've got different fork with different fork to axle. Uh, sorry, uh-huh. sorry, different axles to crown heights, different travel forks, different yep. shocks, even stem lengths. There's yep. a lot of stuff that can go into that. Does that, does that kind of bother you in a way that people can be so far away from how you intended the bike to be or? Um, maybe, I feel like maybe that's kind of like a little bit of pride getting in the way there, but <laughs> I, I, I do feel like I, I do work pretty hard to try and get, uh, the bikes to have a, a pretty desirable feel when it comes to the, the production shock tune. Um, but I mean, you buy, you buy a frame and, uh, it comes with our production shock tune on it, which is nice. Um, but there's always going to be people that, you know, if the bike comes with a two way adjust shock, they're going to want to put a four way adjust shock on it. Mm -hmm. And, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I think the most important thing is like, you know, if you're accessorizing your bike, I think you're also learning, especially like with the suspension side of things. So like somebody ditches the shock, the stock shock and goes and buys their crazy, super fancy adjustable shock. Um, I think they're going to learn from that experience, you know? And, uh, I don't think it's going to be like, Oh, like, you know, this bike sucks. Like they're probably going to learn from it and, I don't know. They'll always have that stock shock to go back to and experience. And, um, yeah, I think if anything, it makes the consumer a little bit more, um, knowledgeable and kind of in tune with what sort of like, how does a, this shock affect the entire ride quality of this bike? And is it better or worse? And, um, if that shock is super adjustable, like what, what knobs can they turn to, to get the bike to feel a certain way? And, I think that's kind of good for everybody the more uh experience the end user has with that stuff yeah definitely it's great for people to kind of learn more about how all this stuff works and impacts the way the bike rides but do you think there is a a real risk in like buying a high-end super adjustable shock that 
because of the way that shock is tuned from stock, you'd never be able to get it to feel as good on the bike as the stock tune that the bike would come with. Does that make sense? Um, like how, how far away could it be from a from a shock tune perspective and would you be able to get it close enough with all the clickers kind of thing? I really think it depends on the bike. Um, I think there's some situations for sure where if you were to buy, you know, uh, an off the shelf tune, let's say, even if it is four way adjustable, um, or more like maybe whatever crazy shock, um, it's definitely possible that you're not going to have the adjustment range, uh, that you need to make that bike feel good. And then also in some cases, those highly adjustable shocks just don't like being in certain ranges of adjustment, right? Um, like if you're on one side too much or the, like too closed or too open, they just don't work as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you have a shock that is custom tuned to the bike, that allows the clickers to be uh, in a better place to have better grip, better performance, uh, that's definitely an advantage. And um, yeah. even if your shock has a ton of adjustment, it, you, sometimes you can't always get there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause some of them, I guess, once you're on the extremes of damping, like the, the shim stacks being pushed pretty hard and all sorts of weird things start happening within the oil, I suppose it can, you can get behavior that maybe you wouldn't expect. Or you, yeah. And you know, like going, favorable. yeah, going back to like blending like the high and low speed compression, for example, like, you know, you close your low speed in most cases if you close your low speed compression down your sensitivity is like super affected by that and like how your oil goes from the orifice into the shim stack like that's kind of a, a subtlety that actually really uh affects like the sensitivity and the ride quality of the bike you really want that like the adjusters to blend nicely together and if you don't have the right shock tune you might need to have that low speed adjuster for example like all the way in or all the way out and that can lead to the bike feeling kind of weird honestly interesting interesting stuff yeah i've I've, for a long time just assumed it like a shock was a shock and then you have to get the clickers in the right place but there's a lot there is a lot more to it than that right yeah and i think i think a shock is a shock but i think as uh like the bike's are getting better and better in the industry. It's like the expectation of what a bike should feel like has gone up. Mm-hmm. So it's like, can't really just like throw a, throw a regular old shock on or like a stock tune or whatever on, on every bike we make, you know, there's a lot of like trying to get that specific feel that we're after, um, which is pretty, sometimes we go pretty deep, uh, trying to get that, like that, perfect balance you know or what we think is the perfect balance so yeah it's definitely a a finicky process yeah interesting so do you think like your background and being a fast downhill rider yourself has been an important part of your job um i think time time on the bike has been pretty huge there um i think with my racing it's definitely uh made me become maybe more aware of what the bike is doing underneath me. So I think that that lends itself to, uh, you know, suspension tuning, geometry tuning. Um, so I do think like that's definitely, uh, 
part of the reason why um, I've been fortunate enough to have this position at the company is just that that awareness of uh, what the bike is doing and what I can do to adjust the feel of the bike. And just having that general awareness has helped a lot. Yeah. So more about awareness than it is about ultimate pace. Like just being a fast rider doesn't necessarily help. It's that appreciation of why, what the bike's doing and how to get it to go fast. Yeah. I mean, um, I think it's nice being able to experience that end of things like, Oh, like this bike can be ridden at the limit or whatever. Um, but the reality is the people that are buying the bikes, you know, 95, 99% of them aren't going to do that anyways. So if you're just making the bike to, to suit a world cup racer at the expense of having awareness of what other people want, it's like, you're not really getting anything from that. So, um, I would say that awareness uh, of the bike and understanding of like the tunable parameters, both on the shock side and the kinematic side and the geometry side is uh, by far the most important thing. Okay. Let's, um, let's talk about some of the, the trends, I guess, that are, that are out there in the, in the race world at the moment. Um, we're, we're seeing a lot of this on downhill to some extent enduro. There's a, a lot of high pivot bikes around at the moment. Mm-hmm. What are your what are your thoughts on that? Um, I've ridden a number of high pivot bikes myself, and um, I definitely think that there is some merit to how they feel on the trail. Um, I do think that there tends to be a trade off, in my opinion, in terms of like, sure, maybe if you have a bike with a ton of rearward axle path it feels great in a straight line hitting curbs right but how the bike behaves dynamically i think is a kind of a different story and i think um like a lot of the time or some of the time with those rearward axle path high pivot bikes you're kind of trading one for the other so yes it feels good going over like big gnarly hits or whatever your bike can kind of roll right through it but uh maybe when you pump the bike to generate speed it doesn't have the the ability to generate speed as a as a world cup racer would want you know um and you know as your chain state grows through corner how it, that affects the weight distribution of the bike um i think there's a lot of things at play and you know i think part of that could be rider preference um but I'm pretty excited to see how things kind of narrow down uh, in the future. Like kind of at first we saw these high single pivot bikes and um, I think there was some, some potentially cool uh, like bump sensitivity and uh, ability to carry speed over chop on those bikes. But, you know, going back to anti-rise, like a, a high single pivot, for example, is like pretty, pretty brutal in terms of squat, right? Um, so that's like one of the traditional drawbacks to a high single pivot is just crazy high anti-rise. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's a, a decent part of why we've seen bikes kind of go to this uh, 
uh, virtual pivot style. Uh, I call them uh, mid pivot because it's not like it's not a true high pivot. Um, it's yeah. kind of a more moderate axle path um, with more reasonable anti-rise values. And I see that being more of a more of a trend, just kind of like bringing back some of the desirable but maybe overdone qualities of a true high pivot and uh, bringing it back to be something that can be ridden aggressively and have speed generated from and uh, ridden more like a uh, World Cup downhill would want to ride it yeah interesting stuff what about rebound speeds it sort of feels like there's a bit of a trend towards faster rebound speeds that's kind of making its way across from racing into more regular riders is that something that you guys see and why why do you think we're seeing that um yeah that's a that's an interesting topic um I think rebound speed is kind of like there's a certain amount of predictability. I think that comes from a slower rebound at the potential expense of sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Like if your rebound is slow enough to where your wheel isn't uh, coming back quickly enough in time for the next bump, you're just going to pack up and your suspension is going to be harsh. Right. But if you have it too fast, it kind of feels nervous and it, you know, it's a little bit unsettling. And I do think like that, that comfort level of how fast you can run your rebound is definitely like a, a rider to rider preference. Like for example, I, I would say like, I like my rebound kind of medium to medium fast in the spectrum. Whereas, um, like my boss, our product manager likes it a little bit, slower and sometimes that's not even like that's not even like the clicker position but that's like the style of rebound that we choose for our shocks right like linear digressive progressive um like there's a whole different array there's a whole array of like styles of tune that you can choose um to kind of uh dial in that feel that the riders after and a lot of like our back and forth is like you know i might have like a little bit of a preference in terms of having a little bit more sensitivity but he'll be like no it feels kind of um a little nervous to me right and uh you know we'll we'll work that out whereas like um i'll work with like jordy cortez a bit just because we have a personal friendship and uh, like he, I would say, likes his rebound on the fast end of the spectrum for me. Like I ride his setups and it's like, man, this is, I feel like I'm, I'm Josh or my boss, Josh, where like this thing feels freaking nervous. And it's like, oh, I don't know if I can hold on to this thing. Uh, so I think it definitely comes down to, to preference a lot and how much, how much of that nervous feel you can put up with for the sake of, um, potential sensitivity and traction yeah Um, as always a trade-off there's like that's all bikes are really in terms of suspension it's like what do you want at the expense of something else definitely are there any other trends that you're you're seeing either kind of coming from racing or coming from the customer base um i think adjustability is a big thing 
Um, I think as the, the end consumer, uh, becomes more educated, which I feel like a lot of consumers are more educated these days, their desire to like play around with, you know, head tube angles and bottom bracket heights and chain stay lengths, um, is pretty big. Um, I don't know. I think in terms of in trends, like we kind of, I guess, talked about it earlier, but, uh, going bigger and bigger in terms of reach is pretty popular. I would say maybe not as popular today as it was maybe a year ago or two, but, um, I think people are starting to realize like the limitations of, you know, going a full size up or, having like that super long reach bike in terms of being able to not, or not being able to handle the bike in like a dynamic situation. Yeah. Like those long, those long reach bikes feel freaking awesome when you're going down a fire road going 40 miles an hour. But if you're trying to like maneuver the bike through uh, like a dynamic situation where you need to, uh, not even like in a low speed scenario, but like if you need to bias your weight precisely, I feel like a lot of the times you feel like you're kind of along for the ride on those big bikes, just mm-hmm. like your, your range of motion is really limited in terms of your ability to kind of finesse your weight bias within the frame to get the bike to behave as you want through those more dynamic scenarios. So I've never really been a huge, a huge fan of those like really big reach bikes. Um, I think for me being a little bit taller, I've been riding bikes a long time on bikes that are honestly way too small. So I think as, as bikes have come up to like the, I would say like my, my preferred reach on most bikes is about 500 millimeters. So I think as we've uh, approached bikes that are big enough for me, I feel like that's, you know, right around there is kind of my, my sweet spot. I don't really, I haven't had much success going crazy into like the five thirties or five twenties. It's just a little bit too much. I feel kind of limited in terms of how I can get my weight bias in the bike. Yeah, that's fair enough. And it, what do you think we've got coming for us in the, in the kind of world of suspension over the next five to 10 years? Are you, do you have a view as to what sort of technology we might see coming our way? Um, I do. Well, to a certain extent. Um, but I think that's kind of like behind closed doors at this point in terms of like, uh-huh. like, honestly, I don't, I don't know a whole lot. I only know stuff that's like a handful of years out, but, um, I think the the future is pretty, pretty bright from, from a lot of, different manufacturers which is cool so do you think we'll see see some big changes like big leaps of of progression in that side of the technology um yeah i would i would say so um i think a lot of like a lot of it is uh like yes we have shocks that are highly adjustable um but um, really, kind of translating that 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 high um, adjustable value to like a more uh, how is it going to be done in a way that 
makes sense to the end user, right? Like it, it's great if you have like all these knobs with a million different clicks on them, but like at the end of the day, it doesn't really, it only really benefits the customer uh, if they get it in the right range, right? Like the bike's probably going to feel horrible uh, a decent amount of the time unless they have the clickers in the right spot, right? Yeah. So I think one thing that um, will be interesting to see is if like we can kind of like translate that to a more user-friendly um, format, which I'm personally really excited about. Like I don't like I enjoy riding a bike that's um, set up really well, but I don't love playing around with clickers all day. You know, um, yeah, yeah. I'd rather just like know where the bike's at have set up as intuitive as possible. I don't think anyone benefits from a complicated setup. Um, Agreed. Yeah. So not not many people want to take that amount of time out of their riding to go and mess about with stuff. Exactly. They want to go enjoy it. Yeah. I think we all just want a bike that rides well. So yeah. Yeah. We'll see, see what happens. But I think, I think a big part of it is just having something that is user friendly. That's what I'm most excited about. I think. Good stuff. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, but as someone that's been in the industry for a good chunk of time and has a job that I'm sure a lot of people would love to to do, what advice would you give to people who who want to get involved in the bike industry and I guess specifically in the the kind of engineering and design side of things? Man, that's a tough one. I honestly feel like I am honestly really lucky to be where I've had the opportunities to be where I've been. Um, I would say that uh, working hard and I don't know. Honestly, that's a, that's a tough question. I think being, being involved as much as you can, like if you, if you do work at a bike company, uh, see if there's like a natural way for you to, provide uh assistance with something like i think it's like it's easy to be like man i i deserve or want this for myself i'm going to insert myself there but i think a big a big part um of what i've learned uh over the years maybe part of it's growing up but um like just try and help right and i think the more you can be of assistance and make other people's lives easier, the more they're going to come to you uh, to, in the end, give you what you want, right? Because you want to be uh, a part of it. Um, but nobody else is going to want to make you a part of it if you're making their lives challenging, right? So yeah. um, there's kind of a subtlety there um, in terms of trying to work your way into um, that side of things. but. Um, yeah, I I think hard work and honestly getting lucky, at least for me, has been a big part of it. Um, I know it's kind of a lame answer, but I do. No, 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 that's, that's good <laughs> advice. Like making other people's lives easier can get you a long way, I think. Totally. So working out, yeah, working yeah. That out is key. Yeah, trying to be as helpful as possible, I think, is a, a good way of approaching it rather than coming to the table, claiming that you know stuff that other people don't know right yeah 
Um, yeah, fair comment. Cool, man. Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap up with our final four questions that we've asked most people. The first one of those is if our listeners had £150, which is about US dollars at the moment, to uh, improve their performance and to have more fun on the bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? What's the budget again? 200 US. Not a lot. Hmm. I would say probably tires mm-hmm. with handlebars. Okay. Um, what I are think. You? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, what what are your go to of those products, and why are you picking those? Um, I mean, I think tires are, I mean, they're one of the most important parts of the bike. It's like the first point of contact into the dirt. Um, so I think that's, you could potentially see a lot of gain for your money on that one. Um, although a lot of companies now are specking really good tires. Um, my personal favorite is the Maxxis Asagai uh-huh. in the front, particularly yeah. paired with the Maxxis DHR2 in the back. Yeah, I think that's a really nice combo. I think the the Asa guy has the ability to to dig in really nicely, kind of at all lean angles. Um, whereas the DHR has a really good job of does a really good job of slowing the bike down and having a little bit earlier breakaway feel when paired with the Asa guy. So you can okay have a little bit of a have the rear breakaway a touch before your front's gonna go because yeah. nobody wants the front going before the right so yeah yeah no that's a that's one of my favorite combos for sure what about bar you mentioned handlebar i'm a really big fan of the renthal bars Uh um i really particularly love the the aluminum fat bar yeah um it's a little bit less sweep than uh most bars out there it's like a seven degree back sweep but um the fat bar with a 40 millimeter rise is Definitely uh, my favorite, I would say. Um, I think a lot of one of the more common setup mistakes that I see just out on the trail is people's bars being too low. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of bar height has a lot to do with how you're able to uh, change your weight bias. Like when cornering and descending, I think that's really huge. If you have a bar that's too low, uh, it's almost like being on a bike that's too big. It's like, you're kind of like just like over the front and you don't have the ability to, to take weight off of your front wheel to manage a steep section or corner. Well, um, I think cornering has a lot to do with like being able to, to pivot off of your rear wheel more than it is like steering the handlebars. Right. So if you don't have a handlebar, that's uh high enough, you're kind of, you're kind of just relying on that front tire to do everything for you and be like 10 times out of 10 that ends up with a crash. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. All right, second question. If you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? Don't be so serious. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I mean... I think at that age, I had a lot of uh, expectation for myself and um, I put a lot of pressure on myself, um, both in terms of life and racing. And um, maybe that wouldn't have 
maybe I wouldn't be in a different place now if I had taken that advice, but I think I probably would have had a lot more fun along the way. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I don't think like there's a certain amount of healthy pressure, but um, also like beating yourself up isn't good either. Right. So yeah, yeah. Be, being easier on myself, I think would have been my main thing. Have a little bit more nice. fun along the way. Yeah. Good advice. All right, third one. If you could have a coaching session with anyone, past or present, who would it be, and what would you want to learn from them? I might take a big pause on this one. <laughs> That's all right. Um, specifically, anyone that I haven't coached with. Yeah, ideally. Not sure if I have an answer for that. That's that's a challenging one. I mean, I think it'd be really cool to to be able to spend more time with the uh, like the guys that are really at the top of the sport and uh, kind of absorb more of that information and kind of insight into how they view things. Um, I've been I've been able to spend a decent chunk of time with with Manar when I was when I was racing when I was younger and. He actually had a really a lot of interesting things to say uh, that I hadn't really heard of before and hadn't really thought about myself either. And I think just anyone with that sort of experience is worth worth listening to and uh, taking advice from. Um, Can you give an example of something you kind of learned from Greg that he got you thinking about? One thing that really stuck in my mind was... Uh, how to break down the track into different sections. I think a lot of anxiety comes from, you know, you're in the start hut, you're thinking about the entire track in front of you. Uh, maybe there's a couple spots that you're struggling with um, in practice or whatever. When you drop in, that anxiety from, you know, those parts that you're struggling with is going to affect you riding the parts that you're good at. So you really um, need to break the track down into sections and not think about parts that are way out ahead of you when you're trying to ride what's in front of you. So Mm -hmm. I think that was really um, helpful for me to hear, just like kind of take it a section at a time, you know, if you or take it a section at a time because it doesn't really matter what's 30 seconds down the track. Uh, you want to ride the section that you're in as good as you can. And uh, if you're worrying about something that's too far ahead of you, it's not it's not really helping you at all. It's only like it. yeah, going to make cool. you ride worse in the section that you're in. Yeah, nice. All right, last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Like professionally or personally? Personally. Hmm. I think taking taking a moment to have appreciation for where I'm at and the people around me. I think it's easy um, in a world where it's like, like I feel like with work, especially I'm focusing on, you know, what could be better? uh, What are we doing now that isn't good enough? And I think it's easy to kind of fall into that narrative of things aren't good enough. Right. Um, but just trying to, to take time in the day to, to pause and realize the good parts, uh, 
what you have going for yourself, what's good about the bikes, what uh, the things to be grateful for, um, I think is probably the most beneficial thing I do during the day. Nice. Like it. Good stuff. Well, it's been super interesting chatting. Um, if people want to find out more, where's the best place for them to head? I guess the, the Santa Cruz website, yeah? Yeah. Uh, SantaCruzBicycles.com for the bikes. Yeah. Awesome. And what about yourself if they want to follow your life, I guess? Is there an Instagram account or something that you, you use or do you try and stay off of that sort of stuff? No, I have a I have an Instagram. It's uh, Kieran.McKinnon. Pretty simple. It's my first name, last name, separated by a dot. So I reckon we can work that out. <laughs> yeah, I, I could post more on there. I'm kind of, I don't know. After I stopped racing, I haven't really... Uh, done a ton of ton of hype on there but um yeah every every once in a while i'll post little behind the scenes stuff just kind of kind of interesting maybe excellent good stuff well yeah thanks a lot for your time it's been really interesting wish you all the best for the future and look forward to to seeing what you guys have got up your sleeves for the next few uh, new releases yeah thanks for having me chris awesome cheers man see ya All right, that's it for this episode with Kieran. I really hope you've enjoyed listening. Big thank you to Muckoff for supporting this episode of the show. They've just launched their first plastic-free bike cleaner, Punk Powder. And as a downtime listener, you can get 20% off that and the rest of their range by using the code DOWNTIME20 over on muckoff.com during September. Head there now and check out what they have to offer. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you want to represent the show, then you can get your hands on our range of merch by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop with all the proceeds going to help improve the show. If you're still listening and you've got a bit of time, there's a few ways you can help out. First, and most importantly, tell your rider mates about the podcast, because the more people who listen, the easier it is for me to keep this thing going. Please share the episodes on your social media. It's an awesome way to spread the word and get some buzz going around the episodes. And if you've got a bit of time, then a review on Apple Podcasts goes a long way too. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up really soon. But until then, get out and ride.